Welcome to another episode of National Energy Talk. My guest today is Mark LaCour. Mark has the number one oil and gas show in the world. Mark, welcome to National Energy Talk podcast. And this is October 22nd, uh, 2021. Uh, Mark LaCour is in uh, uh, Richmond, uh, Texas. And uh, here I am in Edmond, Oklahoma. And we've seen an $83 price on the oil this morning and around uh, 5.30 on natural gas. But before we get into all that, I know you've got the number one show in, in, uh, in oil and gas industry across the world. But I think the 246th episode was just recent. Uh, and uh, you've got other shows, too, we're going to talk about. But the journey, I have a, a podcast I, I've had for years called The Journey of Life. And I really like that because I talk about different individuals in their life and what impact they've had on others. and you have had a great impact on the oil and gas industry. And so this is, a, this is a highlight for me. This is a big highlight because I listen to about 10 to 12 podcasts per week. You're right there. I mean, it's just like uh, I've got to listen to, to Paige Wilson and to Mark LaCour. So let's get started about you, about what you've done through the years, how you've taken this journey to where it is today, Mark. Yeah, so first thing, sincerely, thank you for being a listener. Without listeners, it would just be us talking to ourselves, which would be kind of boring. So I appreciate you having me on the show as well, um, Mark. Um, the journey is pretty simple. I've been in the industry for 25 years, um, usually in a sales role. Um, my last corporate gig was about 15 years ago. And my company capped my commission and it just pissed me off. So I started my own company out of anger and that's modal point, which is still around um, in the process of growing that company. My marketing guy came to me, I guess about seven years ago and said, Hey, we should start a podcast. And I looked at him and I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Obviously <laughs> don't take marketing advice from me <laughs> um, because back then Mark, a podcast was difficult. You had to understand how to download an MP3. There was no apps. There wasn't broadband like there is right now. So it was hard to do remote recording. Um, it was hard to, to uh, edit audio. And so um, I, and I had no interest in the podcast whatsoever. And, and my marketing guy literally wore me down. He kept asking me and kept asking me until finally I said, okay, just so he would shut up. And what I didn't know is we started the first oil and gas podcast in the world. Um, and three months into it, uh, Red Wing Boots calls me and go, hey, we want to sponsor your podcast. And the old sales guy in me said, shut up and let them talk. And that's the beginning of the this monster of a podcast network that we're sitting on now. So it's been a great journey. Well, it has been a great journey. And, and uh, your OGGN, please tell about that. And you have, like you mentioned uh, to me before we got on, uh, number one show on Oil and Gas Week uh, with Paige Wilson and Mark LaCour. You have 14 other, I guess you started the 15th epi, uh, podcast. I think you've had 14 uh, top shows across the world as well. Yeah, it's crazy. And and a, a big part of it is the fact that we know this industry, we know our audiences, but we've grown tremendously. So we start out with Oil and Gas this week. We're now up to 15 shows, I believe. Um, we have three more that we're working on to launch um, by the first quarter of, of next year. And the growth is, is continuing. So literally OGGN, which is Oil and Gas Global Network, is our media company. And then once we've figured out this podcast thing, and we've kind of gotten that down to uh, as much of a science as you could possibly get something as squirrely as podcasts, we do other stuff. So we have live streams, we have live events uh, to just to get to know our audiences. Um, we're doing our first uh, holiday party at the end of this year, fingers crossed. Um, you know, we want to turn that into something really big. And one of the things that runs through everything we do is that we like to give back. 
So our holiday party, the money's going to a nonprofit for Orphan Wells. Um, our live events we do here in Houston, the money goes to fight human sex trafficking. So we're in business to make money, but at the same time, we like to give back. Well, Mark, tell about those events and more, more specifically, I know you have events at the Canon, you have, but the unbelievable thing you're doing is for Christmas and, uh, and what people that are listening today, the, the listeners, how, how can they participate in any of these events? Yeah. So uh, just Google the great Gatsby, get it Gatsby, all in Gatsby. Um, that's our Christmas event. Um, you can buy individual tickets. Um, I also have a group ticket. So if you're a company and you want to bring your clients, your top clients to a really nice Christmas event, I'm talking, it's going to be a flapper style. We're going to have cigar bars, champagne bars, a five piece swing jazz band. We're going to have an FR fashion fashion show. I mean, it's gonna be incredible. Uh, reach out to me. I'd be happy to sell you packages either for your, your clients or for your top uh, employees or whatever. And just remember that the money goes for a good cause. And it's just, it's just how we, we kind of mushroom out. So once the podcast started gaining popularity, our audiences wanted to meet us. And we, so we started doing live events all around the U S so here in Houston, uh, Denver, uh, Bay area, San Francisco, Midland. Um, and then Mark, unfortunately we had 2020 <laughs> and they killed all of our live events. And so we're just now starting to bring Houston back. It's been very successful. We do it each month at the Canon. Uh, once again, there's a small fee to enter. It's like 20 bucks to enter, but the money goes to fight human sex trafficking. And then for next year, we're going to reopen the rest of the U.S. Um, slowly but surely. So hopefully by the end of 2022, we'll be back uh, all over the, the U.S. with multiple events. So again, they go to the uh, to the website, and what is that website to, to go to for? Yeah, just go to, just go to oggn.com and, and look under events. You also can follow us on any of our social. Our events are always on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, uh, anywhere you can find us. Well, listeners, if you're uh, not listening to all these uh, shows, episodes of uh, Mark Lacour and all his uh, work that he's doing, and, and all the industry folks, please do because it's uh, it's wonderful. Like I say, it's I've got to listen every week. You know, I've got to keep in touch. And uh, and I love doing that because, uh, you know, it's gone from social media. I mean, it's still there and the media is still there. But I find that podcast, I get 30, 40 minutes of, of information that I can apply very, you know, instead of just getting segments of that or fragments of, of things, uh, it really helps. And so I encourage everyone to go to that and not just the oil and gas folks. It's a it's very educational. It's very wonderful what they're doing. And I, I highly support it and, and, uh, and encourage it. You know, we talked about the $83, just first to mention the $83 and where oil is today and where natural gas at 530 is today. But, you know, the crystal ball, where, where are we? I, I love listening to your show because, you know, you give, um, you know, forecasts, things like that. I know you're giving a prediction or predictions coming up, your forecast in the next two weeks or so. Can you tell us uh, what, what, where do you see the oil and gas industry going? And, and, uh, and, you know, I just came back from an oil and gas expo and uh, spoke at National Association of Royalty Owners Convention last week. And I felt a lot of enthusiasm in the room, but cautious enthusiasm. Where do you see it? Isn't it nice to feel energy back in the industry? We have been beaten yes. down since 2014 and, and we, we, we stayed to it, right? Um, but it's just nice to feel the energy come back and the enthusiasm. I, I've missed that. Well, you know, and, and far as the oil and gas industry itself, though, do you see a, a forecast that uh, we can lean on? And uh, because I just don't, you know, I people ask me all the time and it's, you know, it used to be, you know, a yearly forecast, a monthly forecast, uh, quarterly. Now it's like day by day, minute by minute, it feels like. But wh where do you see this? 
Yeah. So we're getting ready to do our predictions for 2022. And for all your listeners, please do not do any investments based on what we're talking about. I find it funny, Mark. So every year about this time, the big, uh, the uh, big consulting company, the McKinsey's of the world start reaching out to me, wanting to know where my predictions are. And it's like, you're the analyst. Why are you waiting for my <laughs> predictions to come out? But people tend to like it. So I'm going to give your audience a sneak peek. Nobody else has had a sneak peek into what oh, I think wow. is going to happen next year. Fantastic. So first thing is we're going to run out of natural gas. I don't mean literally that here in the U S you're going to turn your gas stove and nothing's going to happen, but literally every bit of supply will be taken up. Um, and that's going to drive prices further up. Now, you think about that as far as energy costs, but that also affects other things. A lot of people don't know this, but about 60% of the world is fed with fertilizer made from natural gas. Specifically, they strip the ammonia out of it. So we also expect high fertilizer prices, but because they don't do spot pricing, it's going to take a little bit longer for that to hit the market. So unfortunately, we're going to see food prices go through the roof globally, not just here in the US and Europe, um, which unfortunately you know, is going to hurt the people that are less well-off than it, than it will the people that are more well-off. Um, and then you're seeing this, uh, the global demand mix change. And what's interesting, Mark, is, and, and you know, for, for most people here in the U.S. and Europe that are kind of in the middle, most people understand that renewables and hydrocarbons are a mix. It's our energy mix. And our energy mix has always changed since history. I mean, at some point we use biofuel, right? We burn wood. And then not that long ago, we thought shooting whales or harpooning whales is a good way to light our homes. And we've changed that. Well, that mix is going to continue to change. But this year, a lot of politicians around the world has pushed that change to advance too rapidly. And so unfortunately for next year, we're also going to have energy shortages. Um, and those energy shortages affect the, the poorer countries the most. So think of Africa, Vietnam, China, it's already starting to happen. And so because the energy shortages actually affect education. So next year is going to be a bull year for the oil and gas industry. Prices are going to stay extremely high. Um, you know, uh, crude is going to stay, you know, well above $60. We think natural gas could stay high, but it's also going to have some negative effects. One of the positive things that we kind of hope that comes out of this is the energy transition conversation. It's been one-sided for too long where people on the renewable side are basically have vilified the hydrocarbons, which is unfair. Uh, hydrocarbons can be as clean as anything else. And hydrocarbons are the most valuable, valuable molecule there is to mankind. But one of the things that may happen next year is it may give this negative public perception against the oil and gas industry a break because people are going to have to deal with energy shortages and they're going to realize the value that hydrocarbons brings to, to mankind. So one of the things I'm also predicting for next year is this negative public perception is going to start backpedaling, which we've needed for 30 years. So there's an insight into the, the 10 things I'll be talking about in a couple of weeks as far as what, what I think is going to happen next year for the oil and gas industry. We can't wait to hear it and I look forward to that. And again, listeners tune into that. Uh, the, the challenge, it seems to be beyond the United States, and that is, uh, of course, we have our LNG terminals and we have opportunities for natural gas exports. But, you know, the, the, the global picture in Europe and Asia, uh, wh where do you see that going? I mean, we, we, we we're just, in fact, uh, learned uh, the last couple of days here that uh, there's definitely uh, Cushing is not getting the storage uh, needed uh, for, for our own oil and gas or oil industry, excuse me. So anyway, where are we heading with this? Uh, like I said, we're headed toward an energy shortage. I mean, coal, the coal up is on the uptick for the first time in the, I think the 13 or 14 years, uh, um, coal consumption is going up because people can't get their hands on natural gas for, to, uh, for electrical generation. So they're going back to coal, which is what needs to happen. Um, as, as far as pricing, I, I, 
I, I, like I said, I think prices could stay very high for all hydrocarbons, including coal, for the next year or two. My concern, my one concern about all this, this uptick, is one of the things that's different about the U.S. is that the government cannot control production, unlike every other major producer like OPEC or Russia. And so, above eighty dollars a barrel, small independent producers are are um, motivated to produce more hydrocarbons. And the world demand has not come back yet. I mean, we're starting to see commercial uh, flights come back, which we've needed, um, but it's just in its infancy. And so my my fear, Mark, is that these high prices are going to cause the U.S. to start producing, especially the independent operators, um, and we're going to flood the market with hydrocarbons again. And so my fear is that not 2022, but 2023 may have another dip. I just hope and pray that that doesn't happen. That concerns me as well uh, as a corporate development strategist and energy advisor. I I see that uh, the balance sheets are so important and have been really a lot of discipline as far as I've noticed, but can we keep that discipline? And that really concerns me along the way, for sure. Yeah, so I, I'm glad you brought that up. So a lot of people don't know this, but for the longest time, especially uh, money being dumped in independent producers in the U.S., it was all about growth. Like they didn't care if you made a dollar, just drill a well, get it completed, drill another well. And that's not a long-term solution. It's not a long-term investment strategy. And so now we have a much more capital discipline, which I think we need it and the industry need it. Uh, it's great to punch holes in the ground. It's great to grow in production, but you need to have a return for those investment dollars. And whether that return goes to your employees or goes to investors, it doesn't matter. So I think this next cycle, I think we're in the beginning of another super cycle, another 20-year super cycle of growth, but it's going to have much more capital discipline and it's going be much better for the industry as a whole. Uh, when you can start um, um, making sure that you run an efficient, safe, and financially responsible um, business, then you have less ups and downs in your business, and you don't have these massive layoffs and then fighting for talent You know, a year later. ESG. ESG is at the forefront of, at the corporate, uh, at least the corporate directors are discussing the C-suites, and it trickles down, of course, to all the staff and, and so forth. But is ESG, uh, is that uh, something that's really holding us back or is it something that we can embrace and move it forward, environmental, social governance? Yeah, I, I think it's something we absolutely should embrace. We should freaking own it. Um, this is nothing more than old corporate social responsibility and and then but land in that government's layer. layer. It's right. such a big topic. We have an ESG podcast. It's, it's called Oil and Gas Elevate. So one of the few pro- ESG shows out there about the oil and gas industry. Um, but I think it's super important. We can run a safe, efficient operation. And when you're looking at things like this energy transition, um, not that uh, not that hydrocarbons will ever disappear, but when you're looking at large, complex, capital-intensive engineering, construction, procurement type of, of, of projects, nobody does it better than the oil and gas industry. So when you're looking at things like wind farms and solar, where it makes sense, there's no better industry in the world to go out there and implement that and make sure it's done cost-effectively, make sure it, the market can bear the load, right? And at the same time, making sure that we're environmentally responsible um you know you go to the gulf of mexico you drop four ounces of crude oil that's an incident you got to report that go to any truck stop in the u.s that have been filling diesel trucks up for 10 years there's hundreds of gallons of diesel spilt in the ground that nobody cares so we have this laser beam of attention pointed at us as far as environmental work and and we're good same way with um with safety right if you um if you look at the safety record of our industry it is phenomenal now. I mean, when I got started, Mark, you would measure a roughneck's experience by how many fingers he was missing. And I say right. that to younger people, and they think I'm crazy, but it's true. No, you're right. we, we went from there to where 
there's automatic pipe handle, automatic, you know, uh, you know, uh, automatic drill bit. Handle. I mean, all that sort of stuff, which is great. And then the governance part too is something we needed. Um, from a social point of view, if you have a company that goes bankrupt because their leadership team made bad decisions, and that leadership team still walks away with millions of dollars, that's just wrong. It's just wrong. So we've needed this for a long time. Um, our industry is adopting it, and it's really funny to watch some of the major players out there adopt it wide open and just jump into it without really understanding what ESG is. And then there's other companies out there, big companies that are taking their time and understanding how to effectively work it into their organization. And I think those are the companies that are going to really pull ahead. In 1992, Mark, I, I founded and chaired and, and, and for about 20 plus years, it's called the International Energy Policy Conference. And the theme was striving for energy efficiency and environmental preservation. Well, when that began in 1992, I had uh, the two, uh, I would say those on the environmental side and the oil and gas side, were not really comfortable about attending a conference where they may be debating and not in a positive way. But over the years, I found that more people, people like you're talking about, embraced the ESG, uh, at least the concept, and that through even the conference, I saw that through the years uh, go even further. And one thing that we we supported uh, was natural gas, uh, something that I thought thought was going to be the the bridge fuel for the future, and and natural gas, and of course LNG. But something that is coming to the forefront, and and twenty years ago we talked about it quite a bit, was hydrogen, and blue hydrogen, green hydrogen. What do you see? Uh, is there that future of you know here we have three million miles of uh, pipeline uh, infrastructure in the United States, natural gas pipeline infrastructure in the United States? Where's hydrogen fit? And uh, I, I believe it could be, in, in my, in at least my view, is uh, definitely uh, even more so than electric vehicles in the future. Yeah, so it's really interesting. I'll tell you a funny story. So we have well over 2 million listeners follow our different shows. And every day, because we have this large audience, we have about 10 to 30 people write in and say, hey, can you do a show on oil and gas pipelines or oil and gas finance or through tubing services, and we keep track of the top 20 of those requests because we know there's an audience and waiting, and that's how we figure out what new shows we're going to develop. Hydrogen was not even on that list in 2019, and it showed up on the list in 2020, and in 2021, it's the number one most requested new show. So in three years, our audience, which are mostly people that work and live in the oil and gas industry, went from not caring about hydrogen to that's the most requested new shows. That tells you something right there. Um, And to your point with the pipelines, the cool thing about hydrogen is we can basically ship it for free around the U.S. because we have the infrastructure. And I'm oversimplifying this, so please no hate mail, but basically you mix hydrogen with natural gas at the right ratio, you move it through the pipeline for free, at the other end, you strip the hydrogen back out, and now you have your hydrogen. Um, The cool thing about hydrogen is you can use it in a fuel cell. The Regardless of what your personal beliefs are about CO2 and, and the impact to global warming, um, the the worst thing you can do with hydrocarbons as far as CO2 emissions is combust them, is to burn them. So if we get away from burning hydrocarbons and actually using them in things like fuel cells, it's much more efficient and cleaner for the environment. And a fuel cell, it's, its exhaust is pure water. I mean, <laughs> that doesn't sound very bad at all. And so hydrogen is a great fit. And to your point, I like the idea Unless there's a huge breakthrough in the basic physics of battery technology, I love the idea of hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles much better than battery powered electric vehicles. It, it makes more mechanical sense. It makes more sense from a, uh, a physics point of view, and it's better for the environment. So I, I'm 100% bullish on, on hydrogen. 
And I am too. And I, I think that natural gas, of course, we, CH4 and H2O, and, uh, and think of hydrogen as definitely the, the, a player by all means. Natural gas, going back to LNG, um, where do you see the market going on LNG? I mean, first of all, we've got our own policy that we're um, battling with, I guess you'd say, and that uh, it's one thing to move uh, our economy towards uh, more of a green energy. In the meantime, as we both, I think I hear, is that we're both looking at it for a long time, the oil and gas industry is going to be a player. Uh, and, and, and you see that already in the global side, is that where China and others in Germany are looking at it, uh, if, if they're going to survive, and we have 7.8 billion people in the world, 330 million here in the United States, and we're not even really supplying it all for our own, uh, much less the world, of, of opportunities for a young person tonight being able to read with a light, being able to have uh, electricity, having uh, refrigeration. There's a lot of people in the world don't have the, the luxuries we have. And I hope to see that uh, a child uh, across the world, the globe, will have that opportunity. Children across the globe will have that opportunity. Yeah, it's um, a lot of people don't understand. So here in Europe, we're not addicted to oil and gas. We're spoiled by hydrocarbons. I mean, I'm sitting here in Richmond, Texas. It's October. I'm in a 3,500-square-foot house. I just came back from you know last three months. My air conditioner is running wide open to keep the house you know below seventy five. That's probably several kilowatts. You know, it's probably six or seven kilowatts a day electricity I'm burning. The only reason I can do that, Mark, to your point, is it's cheap, and it's cheap because of hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons will never disappear from the mix. Uh, space travel itself is impossible without hydrocarbons. Um, we just need to get to the point where we're not combusting them as much. But to your point about LNG, I too truly believe LNG was the fuel of the future. You know, Exxon made that big move uh, about eight years ago. So did Chevron with the Gorgon project in Australia. And so it's a perfect fuel in that it's relatively inexpensive to switch from coal to natural gas for electrical generation. By making that switch, you drop emissions 50 to 60%. Um, we just need to build the infrastructure to be able to take that gas compress it or, or chill it down to liquid so we could move it and then also build an infrastructure to offload that LNG, uh, turn it back into a gas and put it back in the system. And unfortunately, the last couple of years globally, but especially here in the US and Europe, politics has not let the market control that. The market's what should be controlling that. So you know, Europe um, is basically constrained by the supply of Russian natural gas and Russia's not turning on the taps right now. That's another whole geopolitical story. But but really, we should be supplying Europe with natural gas. We should break Russia's chokehold. We can do it physically. We have the gas. Physically, we have the engineering. But it's our politics is keeping us from doing that. And so I'm not sure what's going to happen. LNG is, is the, the fuel of the future. LNG is something that the whole world needs to move to. We know how to do it. It makes cost sense. The market can bear it. But our own politicians here and in Europe especially are getting in the way. Reliability. Uh, we just saw what happened uh, in Texas and uh, other parts of the regions here in Oklahoma as well in February. Uh, where do you see the right reliability now? I mean, are we, is, it, is that a, still a concern? Uh, should we be concerned for this winter? What's yeah. your view? <laughs> so, so we're going to have a lack of energy this winter around the world. I don't want people to get scared. Um, but your, your, your rates to heat your home are going to go up regardless of what fuel you're using to heat your home, regardless if you're running pure renewables, those rates could go up as well. Um, so I don't, I don't want people to be scared, but we're going to have lack of energy. We're going to have, uh, um, you know, 
people here in the U.S. and Europe will go a day or two not being able to heat their home because of what happens. It's I hope it doesn't get as bad as it was here in Texas. That was kind of a freak set of uh, circumstances that came together. Um, but that's one of the reasons, I, unfortunately, I think that the public perception, the negative public perception against the oil and gas energy is actually diminished uh, in the next 12 months is because of these energy shortages that happen. And once again, I don't want it to happen. I hope I'm wrong. You know, I don't want anybody to have to be cold or, or throw all their food out of the refrigerator because they couldn't have right. electricity for a couple of days. But I, I'm pretty confident that it's going to happen next year. Digital transformation. I, my talk that I give at the Petroleum Professional Petroleum Data Management Association on Monday, October 25th, is going to be uh, about the digital transformation, but also about uh, inter- energy pathways, America's energy pathways, natural gas, infrastructure, and digital transformation. So digital transformation is, is high and center. I gave a talk a few years ago, uh, got on the circuit, talking about uh, the digital transformation from the whiteboard to the boardroom. And uh, that it, I don't see that every company is embracing the digital like they need to. And I find that, including when we talk about reliability on weatherization and so forth, there's kind of a disconnect. Do you see that as well? Do you see the challenges being met or, or where are the challenges ahead on digital transformation in oil and gas? So people think I'm crazy. I think the future of our industry is bright. It's positive. Uh, it's going to be fast. It's going to be nimble. It's going to be super sexy like Silicon Valley with a very flexible workforce. I think that's where we're going to, as an industry. But to your point, only the companies that are adopting new technology and process are going to get there. And unfortunately, the companies that don't will get left behind and disappear. But there's also going to be a change mark in the mix. So one of our sponsors is Amazon. Amazon has Amazon Web Services, but inside of Amazon Web Services, Amazon Energy Services. They have a whole team dedicated to the energy market, including hydrocarbons. On mm-hmm. staff, they have geophysicists, geologists, people that understand the industry. Same way at IBM, same way at Microsoft. So in the future, I think the oil and gas, I think some of the large tech companies are going to actually have an oil and gas division inside of them. And at the same time, I think some of the old oil and gas service companies are going to become a technology company. I think it's what's going on with Baker Hughes right now. They're turning into a technology company. So I think in the future, it's going to be, uh, there's not going to be a clear delineation between what is technology, what is oil and gas. We will be high tech. Uh, We have to be. It's safer. It's better for the environment. And actually the market's driving it this way. So right now, a deep water and ultra deep water oil is just too expensive. I say that we're now we're up to eighty dollars a barrel, <laughs> maybe not. But back when it was fifty and sixty dollars a barrel, that oil is expensive. Well, the only way to tap into that is to lower the cost, and the only way you can lower the cost of drilling deep water and ultra deep water is by using technology. And I fully expect somewhere down the road, Transoceans can have fully robotic drill ships that literally go out without any person involved, figure out the best, safest way to drill to complete to lay a subsea pipeline lines and it just happens and i think that's a future that we're headed toward um but in order for us to get there mark we need people and what we need to do as an industry is help our world's young people understand that oil and gas industry is not dirty we're not destroying the planet we're not heavy steel we are high tech you know i mentioned deep water you could do a deep water operation there's more technology day-to-day there than it was to get people to the moon it's just our world's young people don't know that we do that kind of cool stuff mm-hmm. no you're right and and the innovation side, I know that Houston is uh, looking at uh, about a three $3 billion fund, innovation fund that's being discussed. And I know in our region, uh, I was involved with a STEM project where at the University of Central Oklahoma, where I served as a regent, we implemented a $26 million location for STEM. 
and to encourage young people to go that route, science, technology, engineering, and math. And so the challenge, and how do you go about, I know we're, we're trying to encourage young people and, and others that want to pursue the technology side as well as the university level. How do, how do we go about that with, uh, with where we are today? Because I'm concerned about workforce. I, I, I think our economic workforce is, an, of course, economic driver for all of us. And we've got to have it. We need the landman, the geologist, the physicist trained, and also all the field, uh, digital, and on and on. How do we meet that challenge? I mean, you, 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 tap, you tapped into that by saying, well, we're going to tell more about the good things. Uh, but where do we go? It's, 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 uh, I know a lot of uh, students that I've talked to say, well, I'll go into another profession. I don't want to stay in the oil and gas business or get in the oil and gas business. Yeah. So to your point, the oil and gas industry is facing a talent shortage of epic proportions. It's coming at us like a freight train. There's no way to get out of the way. We're going to get hit by it. We have a little bit of time to prepare, but it's going to happen. It's, it's just going to happen. So um, how do you deal with this? Well, here and in Europe, um, we need to start with, with our young people. So we have a volunteer team. Big shout out to Dean Murphy, who runs our volunteer student outreach committee in the street team. And they basically get permission and they go to elementary school kids and they read books to elementary school kids about energy, including oil and gas. And so they're pro oil and gas books. They're being read to elementary school kids based on science. It's all facts, no opinion. And then we leave the books behind for them. Then the same group goes to middle school kids and they teach them things about the physics of energy, including hydraulic fracking. They use jello and chocolate syrup to show how hydraulic fracking work and to show the, the distance between things like groundwater and where the fracking is taking place. So they understand the process. So it's not scary. And then they're going to high schools and uh, doing big data analytics projects. So these high school kids can see the cool science that goes on in oil and gas. So for us, we're starting with young people. Uh, we're helping educate them. We're telling the real stories. Once again, no politics, just facts. And that's I think if we can get more of that going on, uh, we can turn this tide. And like I said, I think next year, 2022 will be a chance for us to really turn the tide. But you know, Mark, the part that bothers me is not so much here and in Europe. It's actually the rest of the world. For as long as I've been in this industry, if uh, some young man or woman got hired by Chevron in Nigeria, literally the entire village would rejoice because it was prosperity with shoes and medical care and food. And everybody loved the fact that you got a job in the oil and gas industry. And Mark, now the young people in Africa don't want to come work in our industry. So we have a, another bigger problem, which is literally how as an industry do we correct this narrative? Because the narrative um, has been here for a while the negative narrative, but it wasn't until the invention of social media where one person can have the ear of millions that we've gotten to the hole that we're in right now. It's not, This negative public perception is affecting our ability to operate as an industry, affecting our ability to drill or build pipelines. Um, we can't hire. And so the bigger picture is how as an industry do we back up and help educate the world on the value that we bring? And unfortunately, every way we've tried it before doesn't work. Um, you know, the, the super cool... Uh, um, Super Bowl commercials API puts out. Our world's young people could care less. In fact, the moment they see that, they automatically go, oh, that's big oil marketing. And so what we need is a grassroots approach as an industry. And unfortunately, uh, we're not there as an industry yet to collaborate together because we need everybody to come together. I need Exxon and Chevron to come together at the same table, even though they're competitors, and help us change this narrative. We're getting there. We're just not quite there yet. Cybersecurity. Um, it was, of course, concerning back in April about the pipeline issue. And and um, also, uh, I, I know I had a friend in Atlanta who said couldn't find a, 
a gasoline station for 60 miles from his home. And uh, are we are going to see some more um, challenges there? And and I know the, the workforce, definitely talking about workforce, we definitely need more uh, employees uh, geared towards cybersecurity. Where, where do you see that right now? In, in I love let me jump from topic to topic. I'm right there with you though. So cybersecurity is a huge issue. What's interesting to me, Mark, is say 10 years ago, the only person that even understood cybersecurity was the CIO, maybe the CSO in a company. Nobody else did. What's happening now is it's affecting the business. And that that colonial pipeline hack that everybody heard about that affected gas stations, um, that's what you heard about. If you knew the stuff that's not public, it's scary. Um, and so what's happening is as we move to a more modern infrastructure, as the oil and gas industry becomes more digital, you have more points of entry for the bad guy. Not that long ago, if you wanted to hack a pipeline, you physically had to drive out to the pop- pipeline because it was all analog circuits, right? Running on wires. You'd have to drive out the pipeline, break in, scrape the insulation off the wires, attach your jumpers, and that's how you would hack pipelines. Now you can do it through the internet. And so it's a cat and mouse game. Um, the bad guys aren't bored little kids in Iowa like they were 10 years ago. The bad guys now are state-sponsored hackers, some of the smartest people in the world that are so super equipped. So on the oil and gas side, we have to also have that same amount of firepower. And the interesting thing is there's a lot of uh, was a lot of buzz for the last, say, five years around artificial intelligence, around AI and oil and gas, and it really didn't pan out. But the one place it's really panned out is cybersecurity. So you now have AI good guys fighting inside behind Chevron's firewall, the AI bad guys on the outside. Uh, a lot of people don't know this. Chevron gets attacked about 250,000 times a day. Right. And, and so so as an industry, cybersecurity has become super important as, as well as physical security, like, you know, but it's um, it's amazing to see how quickly as an industry we figured out that we need to do this. And what's cool to me is that the business recognizes it. So if I go talk to some pipeline operator for you know one of the big pipeline companies and I mentioned cybersecurity, he knows all about it. He knows the points of entry. He knows where they're weak. He understands um, attacks. And it just I just think it's cool. It's got to the point where the business now is embracing technology, including cybersecurity. Mergers and acquisitions. Are you seeing a lot of uh, talk about mergers, and acquisitions, consolidation? Uh, is that moving forward or slowing down? Um, it, for right now, it's staying about the same. I don't know about you, but I have not seen this much capital sitting on the sidelines. It's like right. investors are scared to invest. They're, they're having trouble finding the right deals. And a part of that is that ESG component that we talked about earlier. Um, and, and I don't think as from an investment community, I don't think we've worked out what is okay, what's not. You know, you see a lot of big institutions publicly talking about how they're um, getting away from investing in the fossil fuel industry. What if you really do the research, what they typically do is they stand up another company, they put their fossil fuel investments in that other company, and then they can uh, legally and truthfully say, we don't own any stocks in the oil and gas industry. Yet this other company, which also pays dividends to back to the organization, does. Um, the other thing I'm starting to see is I'm starting to see a lot of the anti-oil and gas investment um, groups out there. Um, that 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 try to keep investment dollars out of the oil and gas industry for for environmental reasons. I'm starting to see them uh, change their tune a little bit, realizing that you can invest in hydrocarbons, you can invest in fossil fuels, and you can do it environmentally responsibly. So, a um, bunch of money out there. First, mergers and acquisitions. Um, I think you can see some continued um, mergers with some of the smaller service companies that are out there just because times are good right now. And the companies that manage their capital well when times are bad are sitting in a good place and they have capital to to, to, um, 
to invest and to, to buy other companies. But the other thing I'm starting to wonder a little bit about is, you know, our, our super majors, our IOCs who used to have uh, the most reserves in the world now are being constrained on where they can drill because of the national oils company basically saying you can't drill here or exxon and so somewhere down the road it makes sense to me that maybe some of the better run nocs actually buy one of the iocs you know um it's not beyond in my head the realm of possibilities that somewhere down the road petrus you know buys bp or at least the parts of bp so once again i think the industry is, is getting ready to go through a lot of change including including mergers and acquisitions um but right now, it's just a bunch of capital sitting on the sideline because nobody can figure out what's a good deal to invest their money in. OPEC Plus. Um, uh, where do we stand with OPEC Plus? And, you know, uh, we've gone from, uh, uh, you know, being a net uh, importer, next net exporter, you name it, going all over the page here. But where is OPEC down the road? So one thing I want to say is, as an American and as somebody that loves and has a passion for the oil and gas industry, what the hell are we doing asking OPEC to increase production? We can increase production here on ourselves. That just bothers the hell out of me. But to answer your question, um, OPEC plus, which is OPEC in Russia, um, is basically, um, I think, playing a waiting game. Um, the other thing I think is happening, it's be interesting to say both Russia and OPEC say they can increase production, but they don't want to right now. I don't believe them. I, I'm pretty confident that OPEC's um, and I could be wrong. I'm pretty confident OPEC's uh, tapped out. They can't increase production much. And I think it's the same way with Russia. And that's why I think we're getting ready to go through an energy shortage this winter because they're saying they can increase production. I don't think they have the ability to increase production much, but demand's going up. So, um, you know, OPEC plays a critical role or OPEC plus plays a critical role in the pricing. Uh, unfortunately, because of our politics, uh, we can't step up to the plate. And, and to well, you alluded to this earlier when we were a net exporter, for a little while, we could step up to the plate. And the truth is, from a, a physical inventory of hydrocarbons, if we wanted to, if our politicians would let us, we could use oil like a weapon, just like OPEC Plus does, and we could flood the market and 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 bury everybody. You know, that's what Reagan did when he wanted to destroy the Soviet Union, which is smart. The problem, though, right now with, with us doing that is our politicians won't let us. So it gives a lot of power to OPEC. OPEC plus, which is basically a cartel with their own unique needs uh, and, and desires. And so they're going to do what's best for OPEC. They're not going to do what's best for the world. So, um, you know, I said seven, eight years ago, I thought OPEC was on its last leg that is being destabilized because they were fighting amongst themselves. And what's happened in the last couple of years is it's kind of brought them back together and, and not all of them, but it's, it's I think it's re reinvigorized the cartel. So um, they're still a major player. They still control prices. Um, we could we could overpower them if our politicians would let us. That sounds bad. We we could we could go head to head in the market with them if we wanted to. If our politicians would get out of the way, but right now they're they're controlling pricing. Mark, thank you for uh, being a guest on National Energy Talk, and uh, listeners definitely tune in to all the podcasts in OGGN, and especially Oil and Gas Week, the Oil and Gas Week with Paige Wilson and Mark Lacour. And Mark, uh, where do they, again, can the, the listeners, uh, not only this, your podcast, but also get more information about OGGN? Yeah, just go to OGGN.com and find all the shows there. Whatever podcast player you use on whatever phone you have, just type in oil and gas because we're number one. We pop up number one. Um, you know, thank you. If I answer any questions, if I can help anybody in the audience, reach out to me. Mark, this was awesome. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to National Energy Talk. Go to markstansbury.com for blogs and episodes. Thank you again 
Stay tuned for more shows of National Energy Talk.